0: The following study is a Sunday morning lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. At this time, we'd like you to uh, grab your Bible and turn with me to the Song of Solomon. And uh, let's get to it, Song of Solomon. There was an older couple and they were at this celebration of their 70th wedding anniversary. And a bunch of their family and friends gathered and they were sitting in these two chairs there in the family room and the family was all gathered around and they were giving, you know, gifts, wedding anniversary gifts for this older couple. And, you know, the guy, you know, the older feller, he just uh, wanted to say something and he said, you know, honey, in these, you know, 70 years of marriage, I've found you tried and true. And she said, What? She said, in these 70 years, honey, I've, I've found you tried and true. Huh? Honey, in, in these 70 years, I've found you tried and true. And she looked at him and said, well, in these 70 years, I'm sick and tired of you too. <laughs> uh, hearing can be a problem as we get older. Um, but marriage, marriage can be challenging uh, and trying. And uh, we have here this amazing marriage that is pictured for us here in the Song of Solomon. And uh, I think we'll find it to be a blessing and beneficial to get into this story. And I'm, I'm gonna draw your attention to chapter four. If you turn to chapter four with me. Um, uh, I, was, I was planning on going through four chapters on Wednesday night, but I only got through two. So I'm gonna back up a little bit uh, and look at another. Well, it's really one of my favorite single verses in the Song of Solomon. And it may not be, there's, there's actually a lot of famous verses in Song of Solomon. You'll recognize many of them as we go through this book. But this is the one that um, makes me the happiest, I'm, I, I think. And it, and it's a single little verse that we, we take our Sunday study and we focus in on a single verse. Wednesday night, I'll show you the whole chapter and it's, it's an amazing chapter and well, it's, it's rated PG-30. Uh, I'll definitely tell you that. PG-30, yeah, the, the, the Jewish rabbis taught that the men had to be 30 years or older before they could read this book. Uh, because it's kind of, well, it's pretty graphic, you know, intimately between this husband and this wife and talking about all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, it's, it's going to be, you know, you've got to make sure to check the kids in on Wednesday night to the children's ministry, because uh, it's going to be rated PG-30 for sure. Um, but it's good, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful book on love, romance, What is the Song of Solomon about? Well, there's four ways of looking at it. I love the Bible for its multifaceted, you know, angles that we can look. I was sharing on Wednesday night how it is in fact, number one, a story. It's just a beautiful love story. It's actually, you might even call it better than a story. You might call it an opera because it is a song and it's sort of worked out like an opera. We have the, you know, the uh, shepherd king who's Solomon, who the, the story kind of goes like this, where the, the king kind of sneaks out of his kingliness, puts on some shepherd clothes and goes out among the normal people and just kind of hangs out. And he meets this girl who's working in her vineyards and, and they kind of fall in love. She doesn't really know necessarily that he's a king out, out, of, the, out of the gate, but eventually they fall in love and they, they, they uh, get married and they come, you know, she goes to the palace. It's kind of a, a Cinderella story, but a lot, lot older than Cinderella story. Um, even the evil sisters, except this case, it's brothers. The brothers make this poor girl work their vineyards. Meanwhile, her vineyard is, you know, unkept because she's so busy helping her brothers and stuff. And, and it's an amazing story. We, we would call it an opera. So that's number one. That's the one way we look at this. It's just a good story. Number two, the Jewish rabbis have taught for, you know, centuries, millennia, that this is a beautiful picture, allegory of God's love for his wife. Who's the wife of God? Well, that's Israel. In the Old Testament, you see where God considers Israel, the Jewish people, his wife. And by the way, man, don't get me started on this one. Um, You know, there's a lot of the church today that says God has forsaken Israel and the church has replaced Israel. Well, then that would make God just one who divorced his wife. Meanwhile, God says in his word, I hate divorce. Has God divorced the Jews? Of course not. He's got a plan and a purpose for the Jews. And just read the beautiful, you know, I'm not a teary kind of guy. um, But man, I remember when I was teaching through the book of Hosea years ago with you guys. um, It was hard to hold back tears in some of that teaching there. Hosea is this amazing book where Hosea the prophet marries a prostitute. And this prostitute you know, loves Hosea, sort of, but they're married for like 10 minutes and she goes out and starts prostituting again. And Hosea takes her back and, and eventually this lady just keeps going back and forth between Hosea and her prostitution ways. But eventually she gets kind of old and washed up. She's no longer attractive. And, and, um, and instead of being you know, sold as a prostitute, she's up on the slave market, ready to be sold as a old haggardly slave and Hosea comes and bids on his own wife to take her back um, because he loves her. Um, that's, that's a picture. This amazing book of Hosea is a picture of God. Even though the Jews sort of, if you would, prostituted themselves with Baal and Ashtoreth and all these gods and goddesses, God says, I'm still going to take you back over and over and over again. It's really quite powerful, showing the love of God and his patience, his long-suffering toward us. But All that said, the Lord looks at Israel as the wife of God. And so the Jews look at this book as an allegory, which I think it is. That's an accurate way of looking at it. That's layer number two. So layer number one, it's an opera story. Layer number two, it's an allegory for the Jews. But the Bible, I love it, it's more than just two layers. In this case, maybe more, more than four, who knows. But the third layer is, it's a beautiful allegory for Jesus Christ and his church. In the New Testament, we, as a New Testament believer, we can look back into the book of Song of Solomon and we see pictures for us. You see, while Israel is the wife of God, in the New Testament, we're called the bride of Christ. Now, we're not married necessarily. We're espoused, if you would, in biblical terms to Christ when we become believers. But there's coming a day where there's the marriage feast of the Lamb, when the wedding really kicks off. And, uh, and then we are gonna be uh, sort of, in that sense, married in that picture, example, uh, to God, um, even as the Jews are. Um, but that's, that's yet to happen. Uh, I believe that's gonna happen after the rapture of the church, when the, after the second coming of Christ, uh, and then the marriage feast of the Lamb, but that's a whole other discussion. So you've got this beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church, and that's what the New Testament says. We are the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And he's the bridegroom. So we see that analogy as well, and that's one we tend to focus on. But there is a fourth and final layer that we could look at in this book, and that is a manual on marriage. We see this love, and it's sort of this perfect love between this, this king-shepherd, shepherd-king, um, and the way that he loves what is called his beloved. Um, this, this woman who's, um, she sees flaws in herself, but he doesn't. He sees her in perfection, just total perfect, and and he loves her with a perfect kind of love. And we're gonna read all about that on Wednesday night. And that's where we really get to the single verse that I love, Um, and uh, there's so much here that I like talking about. It's it's just a little verse. It's chapter four, Song of Solomon, verse seven. It says there in four, seven, thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Who's saying this? This is the, the, the shepherd king. This is Solomon, if you would, speaking to his love. Now, um, some of you might say, well, which love is it? He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Who's he talking to? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. We talked about the Shulamite woman on Wednesday night, and, um, and uh, there's kind of an interesting debate among scholars about who is this woman that Solomon's writing about. But could it be, uh, even though God never intended for kings to have more than one wife, that was just the stubbornness of kings doing things that God didn't want them to do. Remember in Deuteronomy 17, it says, when your king goes into the land, make sure he doesn't multiply wives to himself. And that's exactly what Solomon did. That was a sinful condition. But in his rightness, could it be that there was one particular woman that was really his true love? One that really was in his heart? The other ones maybe were more political or maybe sad to say even more sexual harem kind of thing. But could it be that this is the one that he actually really, really loved? And I think as far as the picture goes here, I think this, this must have been. So who is this woman? Well, you say, well, she must be perfect because she has no spot and, she, and, and it says thou art all fair. Now, the word fair is a word we use uh, differently today in modern day, but we still kind of use this word when we say she's a fair maiden. Uh, It doesn't mean that she's uh, equitably uh, executing justice. She's a fair person, like a good judge. It's not that kind of fair. And we also use the word fair, like she's fair, (laughs) so, so, mediocre. That's not what it means. In this context, it's saying she's beautiful. And she's, it says, notice the word all, thou art all fair. Every part of you is beautiful is what he's saying. All fair. And he says, there is no spot in thee. You know, that's, that's the thing about our shepherd king, Jesus Christ. What I love about Jesus, who's the bridegroom, we're the, we're the bride. How does he view us? When he looks at you as a Christian, one who's accepted Christ and, and been saved and washed in the blood of them, how does he view you? And man, this is one of the hardest things I think as a pastor to try to uh, talk about because there's so much going on. When we sin and when we you know, get spotted with ugliness in our lives, man, it's such a hard thing. You know, we, we preach against sin like we should. Any good preacher is gonna talk about sin. And so we talk about why, why we shouldn't sin, but that's the thing. Um, if you're a Christian, what does he do with your sin? Well, the Bible says he remembers your sin no more. He puts your sin as far as the east is from the west. The scriptures declare that he blots your sins out. There, you know, they're like a record kept of sin, but it's blotted out when you're a believer in Christ. And he looks at you as blameless, spotless, Man, I love that about our Lord, that he's able to do that. He's able to do something that's so hard for you and I to even comprehend. Because, you know, we remember sins that have been committed against us. And you might forgive someone for their sin, try to be like the Lord. But you and I will never be exactly like the Lord. I'll tell you why. Because you might forgive them, but it's going to be real hard for you to forget what they did. God has this ability to erase the hard drive. And just totally remember your sins no more. And so that when he looks at you as the bride of Christ, he sees you as spotless. Man, I love that about our Lord. I love that. This is one of my favorite topics. You know, um, forgiveness is such a, a huge thing. That's the only reason you and I can even sit in church on a Sunday morning like this, is because we're forgiven. You know, and if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you've yet to confess your faith in Christ and accept the work of the cross, then then there's this thing that happens that you, you've got this guilty conscience and you know that you're a sinner and you're wondering if God's mad at you and if he's gonna judge you someday and people debate heaven and hell. Am I gonna go to heaven? Am I gonna go to hell? And, and, and this whole uh, consternation that happens really because we're sinners. But when we realize who we are in Christ, now this idea of perfection, that's the way he views her, all beautiful, without spot. You know, this idea of perfection is interesting. In the Bible, the the Bible sort of teaches uh, us a lot about perfection. Um, Does it make you nervous when you come across scriptures like there, where it says, be ye perfect, for I, the Lord, am perfect? Does that make you a little nervous? (laughs) Man, uh, perfection's cool, but I'm not that. Uh, what, what does perfection mean to you and me? Well, there's three kinds of perfection that I see mostly in the Bible that I want to talk about. First of all, there's, there's progressive perfection. You and I, we're sort of a work in progress, aren't we? We, we, uh, we got work to do. Um, we're, none of us are there. See, that's the thing when the secularist says, you Christians think you're perfect. Well, we are perfect, but in a different sense. But we also would admit we're very far from per- perfect practically. Um, but we, we like to kind of talk about this idea of, um, you know, perfection as something that we're, we're a work in progress. You know, um, Philippians chapter three says, let us therefore as many as be perfect and be thus minded. Like this is a huge challenge, you know, that we're supposed to be, um, you know, perfect. You know, in second Corinthians, by the way, um, uh, it, it talks about this kind of progressive, uh, you know, perfection. In Second Corinthians 7, listen to this, it says in verse one, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us all cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and, of, uh, and spirit, perfecting, work in progress, holiness in the fear of God. It says that we, we are gonna perfect ourselves or cleanse ourselves uh, in, in total, you know, perfection. That's the goal. So that's the practical truth. You and I are progressively um, a work in progress, progressive perfection. Okay, you guys with me on that one? That's number one. But number two is positional perfection. What's that? The preposition, you know, in Christ Jesus. You are robed in righteousness. And this is where you and I can sort of join Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Isn't that what she said, something like that? Um, you, you know, you kind of laugh at that because humans can't do that. We can't do that. Be practically perfect in every way unless you're in Christ Jesus. It's that, it's that thing I was talking about just now that, that Christ washes you clean and you're made perfect in Christ. Another doctrinal theme that we've talked about in the book of Romans is imputed righteousness. That's a, a term that you should be familiar with. And we, we've done whole studies on that even recently about imputed righteousness. So progressive perfection, but also positional, uh, you know, perfection. By the way, you can jot this down in your notes if you want, but in Colossians chapter two, um, verse 10 reminds me of this. It says, and you are complete. And the word complete there is also perfect in the Greek. It says, and and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Um, I love that there's a perfection that comes from just being in Christ Jesus, Um, But that that idea of positional perfection um, is so important. So positionally perfect, progressively perfect. And then lastly, promised perfection. Someday when we stand before the Lord, uh, it'll be both positional and the fulfillment of us working toward perfection. When we get to heaven, he will, it says, when we see him, we will what? Be like him. Old things are passed away. All things will become new. There'll be no more sorrow, no crying. Um, uh, Daniel talks about in the millennial kingdom there's going to be an end of iniquity, an end of sins. Um, There's going to be a practical promised perfection that's coming. So this is all kind of important as a Christian for you to know these things. Um, That good news, when Christ looks at you as a believer, he says, you're perfect right now, positionally. You and I look at each other and go, "Hmm, man, you ain't perfect progressively, you're working that way. We're, we're hopefully moving toward perfection in a progressive way. And that's, that's what true Christians do, by the way. That's where James and, and Paul talk about this. You know, Paul says, you're saved by grace through faith, not of your works. Well, then what's James mean when he says, you know, faith without works is dead? See, here's the thing. If you're saved by God's grace and you're a work in progress, One of the things that will happen is you'll start to move toward perfection. It'll be a slow process, but you'll see good works start to happen in your life if you're saved, that's part of the deal. It's not you're saved by your works, it's just when you're saved, works will accompany true salvation. Are you guys with me on that? That's an important thing to know. There's people that are greatly confused on faith and works and which one gets you to heaven. Um, The one that gets you to heaven is faith. Saved by grace through faith, that's what it says. Read Ephesians chapter two. It's a clear, no, no debate about it. And yet, one of the fruits of being saved is, is works. So all that said, that's a lot of words about perfection. But see, this is the way in the Song of Solomon, this shepherd king looks at his beautiful girl. And he says, you are without spot. Now, what's funny is as you read the Song of Solomon, there's several places where she says, oh, yes, I am spotted. I've got problems, I've got issues. We even looked at one last week. You remember when she was talking about how her her skin had been tanned, which we're all like, cool. Uh, Saves you money at uh, tanning, you know, fake and bake kind of place. Saves you from cancer, you know, maybe. Uh, But that's, that's not the thing. In Bible times, if you had tanned skin, that was not something that they deemed as beautiful as we do today. They thought that was something that meant you were probably a servant or a slave, and it wasn't something that was esteemed as attractive as to have it. She says, oh man, I know I'm comely, I'm beautiful, but my skin is dark, she says, from being in the sun, tending my brother's vineyards. And, and she says things like that in the Song of Solomon, but what does he think of her? He says, you are perfect, without spot. And he loves her with this kind of unconditional, beautiful sort of love. And that's the point of, of this story, by the way. Um, so all this to say, this, this kind of love, which sees imperfection, total, just perfect bride, that's something we don't even see in this world. In fact, there's no such thing as, as what we would call doctrinally justification in the normal world. What is justification? Paul talks about it in Romans. It's just as if you'd never sinned at all. When, when God looks at you and says you're you know, without spot, it means that he, he doesn't even know. It's like he forgot all the sin and you're justified, just as if you'd never sinned. This idea of justification, you don't see any model of it in the Scripture, or I should say in this world. Only see it in the Scriptures from the Lord. Out, nothing like that outside of the Lord's mercy. Now, one of the things about this, which is a great thing, is you and I as the bride of Christ how do we know we're, we're going to be presented before God spotless? Well, the Bible says that. In fact, jot this down in your notes if you're a note taker. But in Ephesians five twenty five, it says, Husbands, love your wives, listen, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That, listen, that he might present it to himself. A glorious church that he might sanctify, I should say, and cleanse the marriage and with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish." Isn't that amazing? So when we stand there at the wedding feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb, and we're presented as the bride, dun, 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 I'm nervous about that moment, just a little bit. Because man, I, I can just picture the doors in the back opening and everybody turning around and there's Brett the bride. Ah! Like, like that's a scary thought right there. Um, But, but good news, good news. Um, When that happens, I'm going to be presented, and so will you if you're a believer, before the bridegroom as spotless without blemish. I'm so far from that right now. It's not even. It's very difficult to even imagine this whole thing. But this is what the Bible says. You can bank on what the Bible says. And it says, Christ washes his church in the water of the word. He presents himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Uh, Man, that's such good news. And what does that do for you and for me? What what should you and I walk away with, 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 with this knowledge? Some are like, okay, yeah, whatever. We're spotless, great. Married, yeah, whatever. Well, there's a bunch of benefits from knowing this idea that you are a spotless bride, A bunch of benefits. And I want to just kind of think through some of those if you'd allow me. Um, Spotlessness, number one, will bring peace of conscience. If you are a spotless bride, you're not going to be worried. I remember on the first date when I took my bride out for the first date, I don't know what I was thinking, but it was the day after I had my wisdom teeth taken out. And my cheeks were swollen, you know, like a chipmunk. And I... I, um, I was going to take her out to this fancy restaurant. So I did. I took her out to this nice restaurant and it was a great restaurant. It had steak and like really good food and stuff. But those of you that have added your wisdom teeth out, steak is kind of the last thing in the world you want to try to eat. So, uh, and those of you that know me, know this is how bad it was. I just ordered a salad. Because <laughs> I, I was in such pain and, and I was just trying to, you know, act cool with this girl that I was taking out. It's amazing. She ended up marrying me uh, because I'm pretty sure I was like drooling and, you know, my mouth was sort of still half numb and I was eating this salad and, and I was just kind of gently doing, feeling pain and probably grimacing once in a while. But um, I was so self-conscious thinking, oh man, she's going to think I'm just this total weirdo. Um, but some of us, I think we, we look at God that way, that he's going to see our flaws and, oh man, you know, I'm such a sinner, and I've got, I've got lettuce on my teeth and, and uh, my cheeks are swollen out to here and, and this is the problem, but not so. When you and I stand before the Lord, we can have our conscience. That's the part of you that knows that you're a sinner and reminds you that you're a sinner. This idea of, of, a, of a good conscience. You know, this is something that you and I should um, kind of remember that how big this, this idea of conscience is. But many live a life of fear, being found out of what they've done. You know, oh no, I'm gonna be caught. And, and it, it, it puts this pit in your stomach as you're walking around in life, just like, oh man, the Lord's gonna figure me out. I'm gonna be found out of my sins. But not if you're the bride of Christ, because your sins have been blotted out and you are called blameless, you're called spotless, without spot or blemish. Um, Have you ever done something like with, I remember when the older vehicles, I used to drive these old, like my old 1969 Land Cruiser. There was always tons of stuff broken on it. And basically my goal was just to keep it running and going on the road. If I was doing that, it was great. Um, But oftentimes, you know, taillights would be out um, license plates, stickers, you know, weren't always up to date. Uh, <laughs> and I remember, I remember there was a time I, I hadn't got the stickers yet, you know, and I was a little behind and I was driving around, you know, in my old 69 Lankers are just sure that the cops were going to pull me over. And you know that feeling where, you know, you're kind of out of compliance and you're just kind of like, oh, I hope I don't get caught. Um, some of you are looking at me with blank stares. Um, are you guys really that, that, that pure? Uh, man... Well, I remember as a young man, just thinking, oh man. But, I, but that's the feeling that so many people go through life. Oh, I hope I just don't get caught. I hope that my sins aren't found out. Well, listen, the Lord takes as a Christian your sin and puts it as far as the East is from the West and remembers it no more. Now, some of you might say, Brett, this is the problem with this teaching is you're sort of giving all of us license to just go out and sin it up then? Because man, if it's all washed away and if you're all forgiven, why not just continue sinning uh, and have a great time and then know, hey, I'm forgiven by God's grace? (laughs) Did Paul ask that same question rhetorically? Yes. Paul said, should we just continue in sin then and let grace abound? What was his answer? God forbid. Well, that's not a great answer. God forbid, because what if I forbid, what if I bid? What if I say, yeah, I'm gonna keep sinning? No, God forbid, the idea is, that's craziness. And the idea is Paul's saying it's it's crazy to have a loving bridegroom who's washed our sins away and for us just to stomp on that and use God's grace as a, a doormat to wipe our feet on. He's saying, that's ridiculous. But when you realize how much the Lord loves you and forgives you, then the right response is to say, I'm not gonna go out and just continue sinning let grace abound. Um, And and one of the things that I always like to remind us is, you know, the Lord forgives us our sin, but why is sin bad to begin with? We we wrongly think sin's bad because God just says it's bad. I guess God doesn't like it when we have fun. (laughs) Some people believe it that way. But that's not it. God doesn't like it when we sin because sin messes us up. The consequences of sin are painful for his people and God loves you so much. He says, man, don't go this way. It's gonna mess you up. It's gonna hurt you. Sin is not you know, uh, bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God forbids sin because it messes you up and it hurts his people. So people are saying, yeah, I can keep sinning and I can keep having a, a great time sinning and God forgives me. You're missing the whole point. You have a loving God who wants you to do well and not be in pain. And so he tells you, don't do this stuff. But when you do, and the wages of sin is death, that's where God is so gracious. And he calls you spotless. So the the cool thing is when you really know the Lord and you've accepted Christ, you can walk in this lifetime with that conscience being sort of eased because the Lord loves you in spite of who you are. Let me give you some New Testament scriptures, by the way. You can jot them down. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 14 talks about this conscience thing that God does. It says in Hebrews 9 14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God? What did Jesus do? He was spotless and he offered himself to God. And it says, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me read that again. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This tells us something. You are spotless because he was truly spotless, practically in every way, like in a practical sense. You and I are practically not spotless. Positionally, we're spotless because he was the spotless lamb. And this goes back to the Old Testament. When you read the stories about the people bringing their lamb to the altar and the priest would inspect the lamb and say, let's take a look at your lamb. And if the lamb was with blemishes and with spots, it would be rejected. There would be no sacrifice. So you needed to bring a spotless lamb. Otherwise, you were out of business. And, and that was a beautiful picture pointing forward to, remember when J the Bee there in the Jordan River said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was the spotless Lamb. If Jesus wasn't spotless, that's by the way, all these goofy history channel things that they talk about Jesus and, and they try to ascribe crazy things to Jesus. He was married to Mag, Mary Magdalene and they moved to England and uh, you know and all this like the crazy stuff that you read that's just totally whacked But they always try to kind of make Jesus look like he's in some kind of a sinful light. But Jesus, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That is, he took upon himself, the pure spotless lamb took all the spots and sinfulness of us and put it upon himself. That's why it stuck. That's why the forgiveness of sin took. It's because Jesus was spotless. That's what it says. Because he was the spotless lamb, it says your conscience has been purged from an evil conscience or dead works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says a similar thing. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you have an evil conscience and you're walking around feeling like, oh man, I'm a bummed out sinner. Well, that might be practically you're still struggling with sin, trying not to sin, and you fail at times. But positionally in Christ, your heart can be sprinkled from an evil conscience. You can rejoice that you're forgiven and that you're blameless. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter gets on the evil conscience sprinkled Bandwagon, when he says in First Peter three twenty one, he says, um, speaking of you know the flood of Noah, which is a like figure whereunto even baptism, water baptism, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord wants you to have a sprinkled conscience. Now, this is gonna, I'm gonna get really weird on this one. Are you guys ready for this? Um, and people don't like this when I talk about this, but um, spanking your children. Uh, this is the psychology nobody's gonna talk about because it's not politically correct. But one of the things that they have studied about kids that are spanked versus kids that are not spanked is the kids that are not spanked, there's a stack of evil conscience, if you could call it that, that starts to stack up in a kid's heart. And you know they're told, now stop that, stop that, stop that. And they just keep doing it. And they know they're doing something wrong and their little heart, well, it's wired by God to have a conscience. And one of the things that psychology has proven, when, and, and this is something they'll never tell you, but um, when a child is spanked rightly um, and not abusively, and I've done whole sermons on that and um, so many people do spanking wrong, and it is abusive and it's wrong. But when done in a biblical and a godly kind of sense of discipline, one of the benefits of of a spanking is to start having this notion of man. Um, So I sinned, there's a penalty. And then, but after that penalty, one of the things I remember as a kid, my parents always taught me is after I was spanked, my my dad would sit me up on his knee and say, okay, now Brett, you know, what you did was wrong. Yeah, you know, you got a spanking, sure do. but you know that, that the Lord forgives you. And, and right now you're, you're forgiven. And, and he, expl- he would explain carefully how there's no more record of that sin. You're, you're free right now to not go sin anymore. You're free to not do stuff that's bad and contrary to God. And I remember there was something about that in just growing up with that kind of thing. I'm so glad I had parents that spanked me because I know where I would have gone. <laughs> I was headed there fast. Fortunately, I had a very strong father um, who stuck to his guns on this and, and I'm glad he did. But one of the, the things I loved the most was after a spanking, there was this rest, restitution. There was like a restoration and a, a burden lift off my little you know, whole heart or shoulders that I could say, man, I'm all good now. And see, the problem is there's some of you who were never spanked rightly and were never taught those things about, which is really a godly notion, that when a penalty is paid for, man, you, you really are free. It's a fresh start. Start over. Um, and so some of you that were never given that, you struggle with this idea of total forgiveness, uh, justification. You struggle with this idea of spotlessness and blameless and walking with that weight off your heart because you never really taught how it works. And so by the time I was old enough to know, wait, so I've got, a, there, there's, when, when I'm a sinner, um, there's a huge spanking coming that's going to kill you. And fortunately, instead of that happening to me, Jesus took that for me, a huge spanking. And that's what the cross was all about. Like as a kid, I understood that at a very young age, substitution, it's also a fancy doctrinal word uh, that, that is the satisfaction of the, the penalty that you owe. Um, and it's that doctrine of, you know, that the, 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 a lot of people can't even um, you know, pronounce it, but um, propitiation spit flies, propitiation. What's that? Well, it means substitution, but satisfaction. Christ died in your place, took upon the penalty of himself, your sin, and satisfied the requirements of the big spanking you deserved. And once you understand that, man, your conscience is lifted and you no longer have that heavy sense that you're doomed or that you deserve death and and hell, you see. So Spotlessness brings about this peace of consciousness that so many people don't understand. Man, I, I love that. You know, there's a um, story that I've kept um, for years, but not long before she died in 1988, Marganita Lasky, who is best known as a secular humanist and a novelist, But on her deathbed, she said something that sort of struck the hearts of many of us Christians because we knew it to be true. But she she said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. She said, I have nobody to forgive me. John Stott wrote that in The Contemporary Christian. But it's interesting that um, that she said, I envy this about you Christians. And man, that is the most enviable thing about being a Christian is God's massive forgiveness that he has for his people. Takes that burden of sin off our shoulders. So spotlessness, number one, brings peace of conscience. Number two, this idea of being the spotless bride, number two, it brings access to God. You and I have access to God. Sin brings about separation from God. Isaiah 59, one and two, you know, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot touch you. His ear is not deaf that he cannot hear you, but it's your sin that separates you from your God. Sin brings about separation. You know, Peter had to learn this lesson. Remember when Jesus there in John's gospel, chapter 13, Jesus, you know, stripped himself of his robe, put a a towel on and started washing the disciples' feet. None of the disciples said a word except when Jesus came to Peter. Peter Peter's like, oh, I should be washing your feet. And Jesus said, no, Peter, you know, unless, unless you let me wash your feet, you can have no part with me, no communion with me, no fellowship with me. And then Peter, Mr. Pendulum, he says, well, then not my feet, but my head and my hands also. Just like give me a whole bath, you know, get the pressure washer out. Let's get this thing done. And, and Jesus, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, oh, Peter, it's not your head, but your feet are dirty. And so they, they need to be cleaned. Jesus knows what needs to be cleaned in your life. And he's the one who wants to wash you clean. I love that. And, 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 be, and the reason he does that is what he told Peter, Un- unless I do this, Peter, you can have no part with me. You can't hang with me. And that's the thing, that sin cannot coexist with Christ. Sin can't just be existing in your life and just, you know, without Christ washing us and cleansing us. Sin brings about separation, but because of spotlessness, because we're forgiven and washed, cleansed, we have access to God, that's number two. So you got spotlessness that brings peace of of conscience. Uh, Number two, access to God. Number three, I like this one, no fear of hell. Has anybody here, this is a rhetorical question, you don't have to raise your hand. Is anybody here afraid of hell? You know, hell is one of those things, if you study it in the Bible, What's interesting to me is the Bible says more about hell than it does about heaven. I have a theory of why that is. I think that heaven is too much for us to even handle. I don't think you and I could handle the concept of heaven. If God were saying, okay, you wanna know about heaven? Here it is. We'd just be, we might even die hearing how amazing it is. I don't know, but it's gonna be incredible. Um, Paul the Apostle was taken up in a vision, or maybe even there. He says, I don't know if I I was there in a vision or if it was for real. He said, but I was taken into heaven. And he said, I saw things there that are unlawful for me to speak. He said, I can't even speak about it. Why? It's unlawful. It's not even legal. God sort of forbids him. Don't even talk about it. Um, I wonder if that's just something that we have to kind of tuck away. When we read these books of of people that went to heaven and stuff like that and explain, okay, in heaven, what we're gonna do is do this and that and this and that. I think we have to take that stuff and and maybe be encouraged by it. It's possible. Um, But at the same time, I'm, I'm a little wondering why can some of these people explain heaven when Paul couldn't? And maybe we should take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Maybe there's some good stuff that we're learning from these books and people that went to heaven. But I think ultimately, even those descriptions are not gonna do justice. By the way, one of the things I've noticed in some of those writings of people that sort of said they went to heaven, um, the ones I start to trust a little more, the ones that says, man, we, we can't even describe it. It's beyond description, but here's an attempt. Those are the ones I almost trust a little more because that would line up with scripture. It's indescribable, beyond description. But the Bible doesn't take a lot of time explaining heaven, but the Bible spends a lot of time talking about Hades, death, hell, Sheol, Gehenna. These are words that sort of we associate with hell, but there's a whole process involved with hell. And it explains it as being a place of outer darkness and total loneliness. You know, if you, if you talk to the guys once in a while, say, well, I'm just gonna drink beer and play cards with my buddies in, in hell. No, you're not. No, it's a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's kind of hard to play Texas Hold'em or whatever uh, when you're weeping and wailing and gnashing your teeth. And it's going to be outer darkness, but total fervent heat. Well, how could it be a lake of fire, uh, but also be dark? Interesting. Did you know that the hottest heat we know about uh, burns its hottest? It's a radioactive kind of heat. It burns hottest in dark. It's kind of an interesting kind of scientific thing that uh, I came across several years ago. But somehow it's gonna be dark, it's gonna be hot and suffering and brutal and eternal. That's the worst part of it. And so hell is something that is horrifying if you really get down to it. But one of the greatest things about being a spotless bride is you're not gonna be rejected. When it all comes down and everybody else will be standing before God in their sin, The bride of Christ isn't even part of that judgment. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We'll have no fear of hell. And yet the Bible does want to put the fear of hell in people. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon that was approached by a bunch of reporters and they said, hey, so-and-so, the preacher across town, he doesn't use the word hell in his sermons. In fact, they said what he says, that place we all don't want to go. He'd never say hell in his sermon because he just didn't want to say it. And they said, what do you think about that Spurgeon back in the 1800s there in London? His answer, he said, that preacher should never be allowed to preach again. We, we've got to talk about hell because if hell is real, which it is, shouldn't we warn people and say, man, you don't want to go there. You should make sure that you're not part of that that thing. What are you trying to say? That if I don't become a Christian and and if I am not a spotless bride, then I'm gonna go to hell? Pretty much, that's what I'm saying. That's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. That's what the Bible says. So as someone who is a sinner himself and really thankful that the Lord is able to forgive me for my sins, man, I want you to accept that same thing. Um, isn't it interesting that not only do I want that in my sinful condition, I want for you not to go to hell, but the Bible says that God would that none should perish, but that everyone would have eternal life. That God wants that, so why doesn't he do that? Isn't that interesting that God leaves it up to you? It's like God is, the, if you would, he's a perfect gentleman. You know, it's like, he, it's like if I went to ask for Debbie's hand after my, you know, chipmunk lunch with Debbie, with my, you know, wisdom teeth taken out, a few years later, uh, I asked for her hand in marriage. And as I reach into my pocket and I pull out a weapon and hold a gun and say, "Marry me," what do you think she'd do? I, I have no idea. Run? Freak out? Say no? But. That wouldn't be the proper way to do that. Just a heads up for you young single guys. It's not not a highly recommended way of doing it. But see, that's the point. If God were saying, I'm gonna save everybody and I'm gonna make you all my bride, that'd be like him forcing people to be his bride. But God, he's a perfect gentleman. And he pulls out of his pocket the ring, if you would, of God's grace and mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And he says, oh, I would that none would pass this up. I wish that everyone would repent and be saved. And he invites you and he lovingly woos you to his love. But the question is, are you going to be stubborn and say, no, I'm going to do it my way. Well, that's what the Bible says. Well, then you're on your own and there's no salvation there. So that's the heavy duty part of the gospel. When people don't preach about hell, it's like they're missing kind of the main thing. You kind of want to know that salvation is what it's all about. No fear of hell. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place and you accept it, believe that he died, was buried, and rose again, it says you will be saved. You know, um, if there's one thing you should fear in this life, did you know that Jesus said to fear something? Hey, be afraid of this. Luke chapter 12, verse 5, Jesus said, But I will forewarn you, whom you shall fear, fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. This is an interesting thing. Who's he talking about here? Some of you might say, well, Satan. But that's not it. He's talking about fearing God. Why? Because, well, if you know how the math works out on this thing, remember Revelation chapter 20? We looked at a few weeks ago. It says that, you know, Satan and, you know, the false prophet, the Antichrist, they're gonna be thrown into hell by, well, it's interesting, who's the one who subdues Satan? Some people think God's gonna win. And people have a wrong notion. They think God and Satan are battling it out cosmically and hopefully God wins. Satan's powerful, but I I hope God, I think God's gonna win. That's totally whacked. Satan is a created being who was lifted up with pride and fell, he's a fallen angel. And he is powerful. There's a certain power that Satan has. I hope you understand that. But, you know, it'd be like if you were to put God against Satan, it'd be like, you know, putting the Kansas City Chiefs up against the Stafford Elementary School football team. Um, about that same, you know, uh, would we worry that, that that the Chiefs, might their game might be on the line playing against the Stafford School Elementary? No. Satan is a pipsqueak compared to God. And the Bible tells us who will actually ultimately subdue and and do in Satan, anybody? Michael the archangel, another angel is gonna actually eventually bind up Satan and put him into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. So the point is you say, okay, so God in his all powerful uh, being, he says, I invite you to love me and follow Me." But if you don't want to, it's your choice. It's a free gift. You have free will to choose. Whether you're going to accept Christ or not. Now, some of you Calvinists are freaking out right now. You don't have a choice. Well, then why would God say choose? Um, it's funny. You know, um, there's this false dilemma that we create by Arminianism and Calvinism. I reject both. And I accept the Bible. And the Bible says, man, God is sovereign. And I believe that 100%. And I also believe that I'm chosen before the foundations of the world. I believe that 100%. But I also believe that I had a choice when I was five years old to accept the gospel when my mom shared it with me. And by the grace of God, I chose to believe. Which came first, God choosing me or me choosing him? He chose me first. So then Brett wasn't really a choice. Yes, it was. That doesn't work out, Brett. The math of that doesn't work out. Who cares? God is bigger than math. Um, <laughs> God is bigger than math and physics and time and science. And I don't have a problem with that. Calvinism and Arminianism, by the way, I think largely their conflict is because we're trying to put God in our little Calvinistic box or our little Arminianistic box. I think that's a a fallacy. It is a fallacy when you read the Bible and accept the word for what it is. So, all that said, you need to choose. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. It's a choice that you gotta make. Without that choice, there's no salvation. So, man, I love that as a Christian, one of the greatest things, not only will you have peace of conscience, access to God, but you'll have no fear of hell because you know you're saved. I love that, it's big. Now, by the way, there's one more as we kind of wrap it up here. Not only peace of conscience, access to God, no fear of hell, but number number four, expectation of heaven. We have the expectation of heaven. And that's that's the beautiful thing. You know, John chapter 14, you know the story where the disciples are starting to freak out because Jesus is talking about how he's gonna go to the cross in Jerusalem and they're all kind of shaking in their sandals. And Jesus says there in John 14, one, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if you remember, you know, Thomas, the guy's like, you know, we don't know the way to get there, and how do we know the way, and where is it? And Jesus gave us that same beautiful scripture that we actually sang in worship today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the way to heaven. And I love this, because if you're a believer in Christ, a follower of Jesus, you not only have the, no fear of hell, but you have the expectation of heaven, and heaven's going to be great. Well, Brad, I don't think I'm going to like heaven. I've heard stories about heaven and what it's going to be like, like like the guy that was the the, the guy that showed up at the pearly gates with the streets of gold, and Peter said, um, "You think you're supposed to go to heaven?" And he said, "Yeah." And there's a bunch of other guys there. Well, what did you guys do? And everybody started telling things that they did that were good, hoping to get into those pearly gates. But when it came to the one guy, he said, well, there's one thing I did that was really good. I was at a store and I came out and these bikers were surrounding this poor little old lady and they took her purse and they were making fun of her. And I walked up to all those bikers and I grabbed the purse out of their hand and gave it back to the old lady and said, you guys are just a bunch of mean oafs. And Peter said, that's impressive. That is a good deed. That's good. When did that happen? How long ago? About 10 minutes. (laughs) For some of you, that he, he was killed by the bikers <laughs> and made it to heaven. Well, stories like that do a, a disservice to, to heaven. You know, because you think it's all about the pearly gates and the streets of gold and that you get to heaven by doing good deeds. Just a bunch of hooey. What do you mean, Brett? Well, see, you don't get to heaven by your good deeds. You get to heaven by God's grace. We've already established that. You need to be the spotless, perfect bride. That comes through Jesus. And the point of the pearly gates and the streets of gold, if if you're wondering, it's not that you're going to get to heaven and go, wow, gold on the street. The idea is, the thing that's most valuable here in this lifetime will just be pavement there. It's like, uh, I have to say though, when I walk out on our pavement here, I kind of go, oh, pavement. I I do, I love that. Uh, It's been a long time coming. But in heaven, you and I won't be going, wow, pearly gates. Honestly, when we get to heaven, we're going to go, wow, God. And we'll fall down on our faces before the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we're going to be impressed and blown away. And what God has prepared, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. There's no way we could even know how beautiful and amazing the things that God has prepared for us in heaven is going to be like. And we have that to look forward to. When you're depressed, remind yourself that heaven's coming. I'm a fan of all kinds of music, but one of the kinds of music I like a lot is the Delta Blues down from the South. You know, it came really from kind of a lot of the slaves down in the deep South. And one of the things that the slaves did with music was so amazing is their music was incredible and it was out of their suffering that it came. But one of the things you'll notice in that music was that they were constantly thinking about heaven. Sometimes I worry, you and I, we've got it so easy and we've, we've got it so nice, we don't think about heaven. In fact, some of you are like, oh, I hope heaven doesn't happen. I'm having a lot of fun right here and now. Lord, please don't come quickly because I haven't gotten married yet, or I'm still waiting to be an adult, or I still haven't you know done the things I hope to do. But that's ridiculous. Heaven is going to be so amazing. Man, it's going to be so perfect. We should all be looking forward to heaven. So all that to say, heaven's going to be amazing, incredible, indescribable, but the only way you and I can have that hope of heaven is to be the spotless bride, be the bride of Christ, spotless, blameless. And so that's the key about this idea. I love here in our text of Song of Solomon that the the shepherd king looks at this woman who we know technically is flawed in several ways, but this guy, this king, this shepherd king, he looks at her and says, you're fair, my love, you're beautiful, and there's no spot in thee. That's the way God looks at you. If you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ, and we have the hope of heaven, peace of conscience, access to God, and we don't have to worry about hell. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Just as the Lord uh, leads you, just be praying and be thankful right now. if you're a Christian, just have an attitude and a heart of thanksgiving that you're the bride of Christ. But before we close up, I'd like to, with heads bowed, I'd love to invite anyone who's yet to be the bride. Have you accepted his proposal? The Lord loves you so much. And, he, and like I says, he would that none should perish. And that, that means you. He wants you to be saved. And if, if you haven't done that, if you haven't accepted Christ, what, what is it that makes a person a saved bride of Christ? I've already mentioned it. Romans 10, nine and 10, I think gives us the best description. There's other places in the Bible that talk about this, but that's my favorite. It's the one where my mom accepted the Lord when she read the Bible. Um, when, when she was about to commit suicide. She read that the Bible just before. She had plans, she had it all figured out of how she was going to do it. But she read this verse about, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead, it says, you will be saved. And so as a last-ditch effort, she, she said, okay, I, I want that. And she accepted Christ. Nobody preached to her. Nobody told her how to do it. She just accepted the love of Christ and it changed her life and it changed our whole family from then on out. I wonder if you've yet to do that. If that's you, man, it's so simple because he did all the work. He did all the tough stuff. You and I, we can just accept the, the free gift of salvation by confession with the mouth, belief in the heart that Jesus died and rose again. If you've not done that, would you do it today? I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. And man, the Lord will hear you. He knows your heart. He's able to, he's God. He can tune into you specifically right now as you just confess your faith. This is you accepting his proposal to love you, to forgive you, and to have you headed for heaven. So let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave, and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry by visiting us at atheecreek.com anytime. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.